with that rousing introduction from the Decemberists, I'd like to welcome you to the next podcast from Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences. I'm Hank Greeley, the director of the center. With me are our two fellows, Matt Lamkin and Jake Sherko. Matt and Jake both came from good families, went to good law schools, worked actually as lawyers. Somewhere along the line, they took a wrong turn and have ended up following issues of law and the biosciences here at Stanford. Uh, we're very happy to have both of them with us. Today we're going to talk about uh, at least three different issues, one about uh, fMRI-based lie detection. We'll talk a little about some of the generic drug litigation and antitrust issues, and we'll end with some discussion of enhancement. First, fMRI lie detection. I've been following this issue for over five years and have written on it several times. I think fMRI-based lie detection is a really fascinating technology that is quite promising, but is not yet ready for prime time. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have helped lawyers who have tried to keep such evidence out of court, including in the two cases I want to talk about today. Since 2000, there have been over 30 scientific articles published showing an association between certain patterns of brain activity, as shown on functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, and whether or not the experimental subjects were telling the truth. This has led two companies in the United States to start offering this fMRI-based lie detection service. Uh, the companies have, in at least five cases that I know of, tried to get the evidence admitted in court. Uh, we have two cases this week that deal with the admissibility of such evidence. In early September, the Sixth Circuit decided the appeal in a criminal case, United States versus Semrau. Dr. Semrau had been indicted for defrauding Medicare and Medicaid, as part of his defense, he wanted to introduce a report from one of the two fMRI-based lie detection companies operating in the United States, in his case, the company CFOS. The prosecution objected. A two-day evidentiary hearing with expert witnesses on both court decided that the fMRI-based lie detection met neither the standards for admissibility as scientific evidence under Rule 702 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, nor was it admissible under Rule 403, under which the court is to weigh the probative value of evidence against its possible prejudicial effects. That issue was appealed, and we now have the first appellate decision on the admissibility of fMRI-based lie detection. The appellate court, in a very thoughtful opinion, affirmed the district court's ruling on both grounds. And so now, for the first time, there is appellate law, at least in the Sixth Circuit, saying that this is not ready for prime time. There was a nice coincidence in the timing of this because just as this decision came out, a similar issue was playing out with the other fMRI-based lie detection company, No Lie MRI, no, I'm not making that name up, uh, which sought to have one of its reports introduced in a murder trial in Maryland. Uh, the murder case uh, involved a former serviceman who had been convicted of murdering his roommate. He was convicted. The Maryland Court of Appeals threw the case out on some unrelated evidentiary grounds. On the remand, he wanted to introduce a no-lie MRI report claiming that he was being truthful when he said he didn't murder his roommate. This also led to an evidentiary hearing where in Maryland, under the Fry standard for admissibility of scientific evidence, the district court once again held that this was not admissible as scientific evidence and further that it was not admissible given the balance of probative versus prejudicial uh, effects of the evidence. 
the prosecutor in the Maryland case understandably didn't want a lot of press attention to the fact that the defendant had passed a lie detection test. He had managed to get it excluded from evidence so the jurors wouldn't hear it that way, but was worried that the jurors might read it in the Washington Post or somewhere online. So this hasn't gotten a lot of publicity yet. By the time this podcast is posted, that trial should have ended and there should be a final result in it. Overall, I think these two cases were appropriately decided. This is a really fascinating and promising technology. If you want to find out more about it, you can look at articles that I've written on it, uh, uh, or that two of our former fellows, Emily Murphy and Tennille Brown, wrote in the Stanford Law Review about the admissibility of this. And in general, there will be posts on both of these cases on our CLB blog. Go to the Center for Law and Biosciences on the web and find your way to our blog. Look for the posts on these two cases. This August, Jake Shurkow joined Matt Lampkin as a fellow here at the Center for Law and the Biosciences. Jake grew up in West Los Angeles, went to college at McGill in Montreal, did a master's in biotechnology at Columbia, went to law school at the University of Michigan, has practiced for several years with Gibson Dunn in New York, and now joins us back here in California. Jake, what are you working on these days? So one of the cases that I've been following is this fascinating intersection of law between patents and antitrust. It's very important for consumers, and I'll trot out some figures at the end, but first some background. Um, You know, what is a patent? You make an invention. If it meets several criteria, you can get one. At its core, it's simply a right to exclude, to prevent others from copying your invention. It doesn't last forever. You get 20 years from the date that you file, uh, which ends up being about 17 because it needs to go through some administrative processes. As you probably are aware, pharmaceutical companies typically patent their drugs. It allows them to be the only company to sell one particular drug at a time. Because research and development is so costly, it is thought to be the only way that they can make money. Um, Companies that put money into research and development for these drugs are often called pioneer or branded pharmaceutical companies. There's also generic pharmaceutical companies, which typically don't invent anything. They just manufacture, market, and sell a particular drug. They usually copy the drugs the pioneer drug companies make once the patent expires. And historically, they've just waited. They've just waited until the patent expires to go on the market. In the 80s, there were three big things that happened. Um, The first, as you're probably aware, uh, pharmaceuticals got really, really lucrative. Um, And the second thing is that there were major changes to the patent law, and kind of part and parcel of that is the third, there were easing restrictions at the Food and Drug Administration on the production of generic drugs. As such, generics began to attack the validity of these big pharmaceutical patents in court as a way of being able to manufacture drugs before the patents on them expired. Um, As many of these lawsuits do, they wound up settling Um, You know, in a typical settlement, the generic promised to stop attacking the validity of the big pharmaceutical company's patent, and in return, they just got a big lump of cash and were told to stay out of the marketplace altogether. In the 90s, the Federal Trade Commission began to investigate these settlements as potentially violating the antitrust laws. The concern was that settling these claims would keep prices higher for longer, assuming the generics didn't settle, and if they were to win, then there would be two competing drugs in the marketplace before the expiration of the patent. But with a settlement, what you essentially have is a higher-priced pioneer drug as the only option on the market for longer. You may have heard about these in the news. Um, Some people have called them pay-for-delay. Most of the pioneer pharmaceutical companies call them reverse settlements. 
recently, various appellate courts around the country have been split on whether these actually violate the antitrust laws. About slightly more than half of the appellate courts that have addressed the issue have said, no, as long as a generic can come on the market any time before the expiration of the patent, the settlements don't violate the antitrust laws. Slightly less than half of the courts that have taken up the issue say, no matter what, they're always anti-competitive. Recently, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, in a case called Inri Kador, Kador, by the way, is a drug that treats high blood pressure, it's very popular, the court there adopted a nuanced approach called the rule of reason analysis, which assesses whether the restraint on trade is, quote, unreasonable given the competing interests at stake. That is, whether the settlement is an unreasonable burden on consumers. This is interesting because even though this test, the rule of reason test, is a hallmark of antitrust law, there hasn't been an appellate court to have addressed the issue who has adopted it so fully yet. It's a big win for the Federal Trade Commission, although, frankly, they didn't really swing for the fences here. I'm not suggesting that they should have, but if you want to use a baseball metaphor, they had a solid piece of strategic hitting at the right time. Uh, two weeks ago, Merck, who was one of the big pharmaceutical companies involved in the Inri Cater litigation, filed for certiorari to the Supreme Court. No one's opposed their petition to the Supreme Court yet, but I think this is a surefire winner to get taken up by the high court. Given the court's predilection for antitrust and patent cases, the fact that no one's opposed it yet, the fact that it involves a federal agency, the fact that there's a circuit split, I think you could bet big money on the fact that they're going to take this issue. So, as I mentioned before, the case is very important to consumers. The Federal Trade Commission suggests that reverse settlements cost consumers $3.5 billion a year. Figure it this way. That costs every living American between $10 and $15 a year. If you want to look at it another way, generics typically sell for 15%. That's 1-5% of the Pioneer. So if you're paying a lot for Pioneer drugs, this case is really important for you. $3.5 billion. thought of that going to the drug companies instead of to me will raise my blood pressure. <laughs> yeah, and then you may want to think about getting another medication besides Kador. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well... Thanks, uh, Jake. I, I want to point out that we're doing a new initiative at the Center for Law and the Biosciences that can help you follow these interesting cases involving law and the biosciences. On our website and on our blog site, we're going to post a list of interesting current law and the biosciences cases with their status, with the issues in question, and we will update the status so you'll be able to know whether something's gone on appeal, whether there's been a summary judgment granted, whether a cert petition is filed, or so on. Look for that on our blog and on our website. So now let's hear from our senior fellow at the Center for Law and Biosciences, Matt Lampkin, who's been with us for a little bit over a year. Matt, what are you working on these days? I'm looking at how we're going to regulate uh, what is often referred to as biomedical enhancement technologies, which, loosely speaking, refers to the use of medical interventions for purposes other than treating illnesses or diseases. Okay, what kind of regulation? Well, typically when medical interventions are sold on the market, they have to go through FDA approval, which, if you're dealing with a drug, can be quite robust if you're dealing with a medical device can be shockingly uh, light. And if you're dealing with a nutritional supplement, it's hardly existent at all. That's, that's right. Generally, these 
regu the regulatory scheme for medical interventions is designed to protect patients to ensure that these medical interventions are safe and effective for their intended use. But the question of what these interventions are effective for tends to matter quite a bit to some critics of enhancement technologies. That is, when a medical intervention can be used for a purpose other than treating illness or disease, many people feel that these types of practices raise concerns beyond safety and efficacy that aren't encompassed by the existing regulatory scheme. What would be an example of an intervention like that? A common one, uh, I think the most common ones are cosmetic uh, surgeries that are not sort of reconstructive. Steroids come to mind, but there are many other practices that are much more common that I think sometimes escape attention, like the use of stimulants by students who, who are, have not been diagnosed with any kind of disorder to enhance their concentration and study harder. So you're talking about Adderall and Ritalin, which are often prescribed for people with ADD, but sometimes used by students who don't have ADD. That's right. And similarly, Peter Kramer, in his landmark book, Listening to Prozac, described uh, many patients using antidepressants uh, despite the fact that they were not diagnosed, or at least he did not feel that they met the criteria to be diagnosed with a, an illness such as depression. And they used it to boost their confidence, to change their personality, and in other ways that one might think of as non-therapeutic. Well, excuse me while I go get another cup of coffee, but don't we do that sort of thing all the time? We do, and that's a good point. The concern, I think one of the reasons for the concern is that the practices are proliferating. We have an increased ability to intervene in the brain and alter our emotional responses and how our brain functions. And I think there's a relatively low level of concern now, but wariness about what the future might hold. So what are you, what, what's your take on this? What are you writing about? Well, there have been some proposals to alter the regulatory structure to look at concerns beyond the traditional safety and efficacy to encompass other sort of moral concerns in the regulatory process. So, for example, Francis Fukuyama, most notably, has argued for the creation of a new federal agency whose mandate would go beyond looking at safety and efficacy of medical interventions to consider philosophical and moral qualms. The Federal Philosophical Enhancement Administration? <laughs> right. Uh, the, you know, there are some interesting concerns that are raised by enhancement technologies, but I actually would argue in favor of the status quo, uh, which is to continue to evaluate medical interventions for their safety and efficacy and not expand the scope of regulation on the basis of contested moral concerns. The reasons for that are twofold. One is that these proposals tend to advocate drawing a distinction between therapeutic uses of medical technology and non-therapeutic uses, and I think that proves in practice extremely difficult to do. Trying to figure out what's a real disease and therefore what's a real treatment is very tricky. The, the reality is we decide uh, as a culture 
what we're going to recognize as a real disease, and it can shift over time, and it has shifted over time. And so you can take a practice such as the use of stimulants by students and say, well, if they haven't been diagnosed with ADHD, then they're using it for enhancement purposes, but the boundaries of what constitutes ADHD can and do change. Uh, So that's just one example of the difficulty there. And secondly, I don't think it's appropriate to empower a regulatory body to interfere with what people do to their own bodies based on contested notions of how to live an authentic life. Sounds interesting. When can our listeners expect to see this on their local newsstands or their newsstands which carry a wide range of American law reviews? In 2013. We'll look for it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. So we're reaching the end of our podcast. We hope to do these podcasts at least once a month during the course of the next year uh, as part of uh, expanded activities by our Center for Law and the Biosciences. Check out our website. Search for Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences. Go to the website, which has a URL too long to make sense to tell you over the podcast. And uh, our website is new and improved. We've made lots of changes to it that I think will make it more useful and more interesting. Not on the website, but reachable through the website is our blog. We're also posting more things to our blog, including this regular update on law and biosciences cases. We also have become a more active presence on Twitter. So follow the Center for Law and Biosciences on Twitter and get regular messages from the three of us about interesting things that are going on in the world of law and biosciences compressed to not more than 140 characters. Finally, uh, sign up for our mailing list. Send us an email at clb at law.stanford.edu. We'll get you on our mailing list where you will get not only our monthly newsletter, but announcements of our upcoming events. We host on campus a bi-weekly journal club during the course of the academic year. We also have regular afternoon speaker series, and this year we'll be hosting at least two conferences. Come visit on campus to see these or look for recorded versions of them, sometimes audio, sometimes video, on our website. We here at the Center for Law and Biosciences think This area is immensely interesting. We hope you'll join us in exploring the ramifications of these advances in the biological sciences for our law and for our society. Thank you, and for the Center for Law and Biosciences, I'm Hank Greeley.